Good morning. Good to see you all here today. I'm thankful for this opportunity to share God's word with you um, in a little different capacity than normal. Normally sitting out here now uh, explaining and expounding it to you. I'm thankful for that. Also thankful to Wes Duggins for the last two weeks of, of sermons that he get delivered to us from Colossians chapter 1. We're actually going to be kind of completing a, a mini-series, if you will, here in Colossians. And our text today is going to be Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. We'll be paying close attention to verses 6 and 7, but 6 through 15 will be our text. So if you would, as you're finding your place, please stand in the honor of reading God's Word together. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the uh, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. In a room this size, I imagine there's some other folks here that like to cook. Now, like to cook and being a good cook are two different things. I fully acknowledge that distinction, but I like to cook, and I like to experiment a little bit. In fact, sometimes uh, I have, a, as I would say from Arkansas, a hankering for something uh, that I don't, I've never eaten before. I want to, you know, I, I've got this niche, and I'm trying to fill it, so I'll go to the cupboard, and I'll grab ingredients, and I'll start making something. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll stumble across something that actually ends up being pretty good. If you're like me, though, most of the time when you're experimenting in your cooking, you don't realize you've reached perfection until you've passed it, um, until you've added too much and, and you can't go back. So whether you know when to stop, unlike me, uh, my sister's here. She's an excellent cook. My wife is an excellent cook. They know when to stop. But if you're like me, uh, you, you go too far. But in either case, 
Think with me for a second. How is it that you destroy perfection? How is it that you destroy perfection? How do you ruin it? If something's perfect, we, would, we mean that it's complete, it's entire, it's full. There is no lack. So essentially, there are two ways. You can take something from it, or you can add something to it. You can subtract, or you can add. Now, those of you who hate math think subtraction and addition ruin everything. But once something is perfect, we should not seek to add to it or take away from it. That's essentially what's going on here in Paul's message to the Colossian believers. He's addressing this very issue over and against a false teaching or teachings that were arising against the true gospel. Paul emphasizes the completeness of Christ. The gospel, the good news of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, this gospel is perfect. It is not missing anything, neither does it contain more than it should. Now let's review quickly some key points about Colossians just to get us in the right frame of mind. Paul's writing to the Colossian believers from prison, most likely Rome. And he writes to the church at Colossae in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, which many of you know those who've gone to this region. In a sense, we could say Paul is writing to them as a grandfather because Epaphras was a convert of Paul's, and Epaphras is the one who founded the church at Colossae. Epaphras has founded this church, having been converted. He's founded it, grounded it, and now he's come back to report to Paul about it. And what he tells Paul brings Paul great joy as he hears about their love for one another and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wes reminded us of this two weeks ago in particular. But what he shared with Paul also brought Paul great concern as he began to hear of these false teachings. The central idea of today's text is simply this. Believers are to live lives of thanksgiving and faith that are sourced in, shaped by, established in, and submitted to Christ Jesus the Lord as he has been proclaimed in the scriptures. I'll read that again. Believers are to live lives of thanksgiving and faith that are sourced in, shaped by, established in, and submitted to Christ Jesus the Lord as he has been proclaimed in the scriptures. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be here with us by your Holy Spirit, and that by his work you would teach us of the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, that he would lead us to live in accordance with it, that in view of all the sufficiency of, of Christ and his person, his work, his authority, we will not seek strength or life, spiritual fullness or maturity, security or satisfaction, ultimate happiness or joy in anything or anyone other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to live. Help us to live by looking to Christ Jesus as Lord and to live lives of worship 
that overflow in thanksgiving for him. Amen. So our focal text being verses 6 and 7 breaks down kind of nicely for preaching. Verse 6 gives us a command and verse 7 tells us about how that command carries out the means, if you will. So looking at verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The command, continue living in Christ alone. Continue living in Christ alone. The verse begins with the word, therefore. Reminds us that Paul said some things before this. He bases what he's about to say on. It falls at a a key transition point in the letter and works out well for us that though we're not going to have sermons out of the rest of the book of Colossians, sets the table for us in our own reading to see how Paul is linking the theology that he's introduced in chapter 1 and its first part of chapter 2 with practice in the remainder of the book. We'll remember that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul expressed thanksgiving to God for the Colossians' faith and their love for one another. Verses 9 through 14... As Wes expounded, Paul's noted various ways that he's been praying for them, how God is committed to their sanctification, even some of the grammar of our redemption. In verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul's reported his sufferings and labors on behalf of the Colossians. Most notably, in the midst of all this, Paul has reminded them of the preeminence of Christ over all things, over all creation and spiritual powers. On the basis of this, he now begins exhorting them to fulfill what he prayed for them in chapter 1, to walk or live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Just prior to verse 6 and verse 4, Paul says that one of the purposes of his teaching is to protect them, He writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This brings greater clarity to the perseverance he's already talked about in chapter 120, verse 23. They're continuing in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. This begs some questions. What arguments does Paul have in mind? What is it that might be leading the Colossian believers to stray or shift from the hope of the gospel? What's the nature of this false teaching he's addressing? The verses following our text give us a good clue to what this might be. Two points to help us remember, and they're alliterated for that purpose. We see a captivating philosophy, and we see a condemning philosophy that has invaded In verse 8, we read, See to it that no one takes you captive, or see to it that no one enslaves or kidnaps you, by philosophy and empty deceit, or as one translation puts it, by hollow and deceptive philosophy or a system of thinking. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
and not according to Christ. And this hollow and deceptive philosophy that is invaded is described as being according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is often reminding his hearers that he received what he received from the Lord, that its source was divine, not something he went off on some mountaintop or into an ivory tower and concocted on, him, on his own. Paul received this from the Lord. We're reminded of his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. The other apostles are the same way. They received what they had to say, their gospel, from the feet, at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what these false teachers are teaching comes not from God, but from themselves and from others. It says, according to the elemental spirits of the world... There's a lot of debate about what this might be, whether it be heavenly spirits, angels. could be maybe the Feast of the Old Testament, as Paul's going to, to read here later, the elements, uh, or some kind of mystical worldview that sees the divine and the, and the physical married together in some way. Whatever the actual meaning of this phrase, we certainly know what it does as Paul helps us understand when he says, not according to Christ. In other words, the philosophy sourced in and ordered by something other than Christ, and because of this, it's in contradiction to who Jesus is and what he has done. It's in contradiction to the gospel. And this is the heart of the heresy. So we see a captivating philosophy here that has... A, an ungodly source and leads away from Christ, but it's also condemning philosophy. Verses 16 through 18, we gain some, some more understanding. Because this philosophy emphasized feasts and dietary practices. Read in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. And Paul reminds them, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Not only did it emphasize feasts and dietary practices, but it, it emphasized mystical practices as well. Let no one disqualify you, Paul says in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Worship of angels, a focus on visions, prideful results, this and these are the earmarks of a condemning philosophy. So these practices and restrictions that were being introduced are being made a standard by which Christian life was defined. In other words, they're committing that sin that I often commit in the kitchen of addition. We might call it Jesus plus theology. Jesus is all well and good. We like Jesus. Jesus gives you some good things. But if you want fullness, you need to look beyond Jesus. You need to go beyond him. We're reminded here of the Mormon heresy. 
which clings to the shell of Christianity in its terms, but adds to it its own books of revelation and way to God. In sum, when we add anything to Jesus, the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus' person, authority, and work, we blaspheme his lordship. When we add anything to Jesus and the gospel, we blaspheme the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues after the word, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We see a comparison. As you received, so walk. Another way, in other words, the way you came in is the way you should go. There's not a new way once you've made it in through the door. We know that these believers received Christ by faith, and Paul has celebrated that. He celebrated how they've trusted in Christ as Lord, and they've submitted themselves to him, the Lord of the universe. But I think Paul's also making a bigger point than just their personal faith. He says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. The title Christ reminds us of Jesus and his title as Messiah. His role as Savior of God's people. The name Jesus reminds us that his name matches his mission. As the angel told Mary, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The title Lord, the Lord, we have the same title used in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh. What well, has some other more common meanings, master of a slave. In this context, here in the book of Colossians, with all that Paul has said already, we have in mind something much greater. We have in mind Jesus' unique relationship to God and his supreme authority over all things. Listen to Paul's description of Jesus' lordship and preeminence in chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. We won't expound these because this is lofty language, and what I want you to get is just how preeminent Christ is over everything. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul portrays Christ as nothing short of divine. Paul portrays Christ as nothing short of preeminent and supreme over everything. And this includes the angels that the false teachers are telling the Colossians they need to seek for their protection, their safety. 
So if within this context of what Paul's already said, I think his emphasis on the preeminence and lordship of Christ is without doubt. It's clear to us. It's been helpfully summarized by one who said, Jesus can be our Savior only because he is our, the Lord. Jesus can be our Savior only because he is Lord. He must have unquestioned authority over the powers of evil before he can possibly deliver us from them. He must have unquestioned authority over the powers of evil before he can possibly deliver us from them. See, Paul is putting on display for them and reminding them of the faith that they received about the Lord Jesus Christ, his identity, his person, his work. Now, on the basis of that teaching, on the basis of that gospel of who Jesus is, Paul then continues and says, so walk in him. This Jesus, this preeminent Lord of the universe, walk in him. This is the first imperative. This is the first command in the entire book of Colossians. And everything else that follows it works this command out. Whether it be the putting off of the sinful desires of the flesh, whether it be uh, letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us, everything else that Paul is going to say in the remainder of his letter emanates really from this one command. We're to walk in him. In other words, we're to live or to conduct ourselves in accordance with Jesus Christ, the Lord. We're reminded of Paul's prayer in Colossians 1.10. Paul's now working that out in, in greater detail when he says, so, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's prayer has now become his exhortation, his command. One way of thinking of this, this connection between what Paul has said about who Jesus is and then this commandment, the implications of his lordship for our lives, is is taxidermy. For those of you from the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul's protecting the Colossian believers from a taxidermy theology. That is, this is not a taxidermy theology. That This is not the bust of a deer on a wall. This is a theology that has legs, that is alive, that lives, that breathes. Therefore, as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, in the highest possible theological terms, so walk in him. He's absolutely sufficient. Here we're reminded that the phrase solus Christus in Christ alone is not simply a phrase to be written on our walls, but it is a truth to be written on our hearts. It's not merely something to be looked at. It is rather something to be lived. The sufficiency of Christ tethers us. 
so walk in him. Christ is put at the center of the Christian walk. The phrases in Christ or with Christ appear multiple times in the verses that follow. Verses six through 15, it appears at least nine times. I want you to hear how Paul uses this. Listen for the phrases in him or with him. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, verse 9, bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's no one higher to seek. Believers need not look anywhere else for their fullness. Verse 11, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ, believers have the circumcision of the heart spoken of in the Old Testament. Have regeneration and conversion. That is a faith and repentance from sin. A clinging to Christ alone. Putting all the weight of our confidence, trust, and hope in him. He continues, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him up from the dead. Baptism, this pattern of our thinking of how the Christian life is to work itself out. I'm reminded of Brother Dale's sermon from Romans chapter 6. Verses 13 and 14, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with what? With him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Finally, verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Seeing a pattern here? All these rich blessings that come to the believer, they come only through Christ. They only come in Him, and only insofar as we're united with Him by faith do we know them. We'll have an examine the command expressed in verse 6. We now turn to how this command has worked itself out. If we're to continue living in Christ alone, it will be in this way. So how are believers to continue living in Christ alone? Verse 7 helps us understand. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We have here four passive participles. Fancy way of saying these modifiers of what is happening in the believer's life are not something the believer's concocting on his own. There's something being done to him and in him by someone else. And these are passives. These are divine passives. God is the key actor. God is the one rooting and building up. God is the one establishing them. And even in the their way they've been taught, 
is ultimately sourced in God's revelation of himself through the Lord Jesus and his commissioning of the disciples to proclaim him to the ends of the earth. So let's think about these for just a moment. Rooted and built up in him. The idea of rooted is simple for us. If we walked outside and have had our eyes opened to all that we see, we're talking about plants. We're talking about trees. It's a horticultural metaphor. Having been rooted, with the emphasis being on remaining rooted in Christ, has this perfect tense idea of something that happened in the past that's brought about a present reality that now brings about so much more. Everything is sourced in this. And the tenses of the, of the following will change to show that. This past perfect action brings out a present continuous growth and building up. Building up the idea of construction. And it has the idea of continuous growth. For something to, to be growing, it must be rooted. And if it is rooted, it will be growing. These two are linked. Christ is the content of this construction project. It's his character. It's his image that serves as the blueprint and the goal. Stop here for a second and just ask ourselves a question. Where and in what ways have you sought a new way of growth, maturity, or even fulfillment that seeks to go beyond Christ? Perhaps you began with Christ, but since have begun looking for your safety, your strength, your satisfaction, and something else. Is it getting that perfect job? the one that solves all your financial problems and your desires for professional fulfillment? Perhaps it's being married or having a child or having another child. Maybe it's developing a ministry, whatever that means, or finding acceptance and esteem within a particular group of people that you want to be accepted by. Whatever the case, our passage today, Paul's word to the Colossians, calls us to stop running beyond Christ, looking for something greater, and to return to him and looking nowhere else. She says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving, established in the faith, just as you were taught. This is being established, made firm, or strengthened. It summarizes the, all that's happening with us when we're rooted in Christ and built up in Christ, we are then established or strengthened in Christ. It says, established in the faith, just as you were taught. Earlier, Paul has reminded them 
He's rehearsed for them the ways in which they received the faith. In chapter 1, we see the phrase, just as you were taught, appear. And Paul gives thanks for their faith and hope in the gospel in which they heard and understood the grace of God in truth just as they learned it from Epaphras. References, as we said, not just to personal faith, but their faith in the gospel that they received. This reminds us of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. He's pulling them back from running after some other gospel. Pulling them back from saying, this is where you will find satisfaction and fulfillment. I picture a, a father on a t-ball field with a son or a daughter who's just hit the ball and now with all the excitement that a little child can muster is running from point A to point B, home plate to first base, or so he thinks. Because when the child gets to first base, the child continues on running to the fence like they did in warm-ups. And the father says, no, 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 come back. This is where you're supposed to stay. This is where you're supposed to remain rooted in the same way, Paul is saying, don't run beyond Christ. Stay here, child in faith. Look only to him. Do not move beyond the mystery of Christ, as he said earlier in chapter 2. So let's think again. God in his providence has provided us with the scriptures. These scriptures testify, as Jesus said, to him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. In John 5, 39 and following, Jesus tells the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You believe Moses. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When you sit down and open your scriptures, are you pursuing Christ? Do you sit down and read your scriptures? And pursue Christ. Are you pursuing a greater knowledge of Him and how He has come to fulfill all the promises of God? Or are you pursuing some other kind of secret knowledge? Maybe a mystical source of encouragement. I talked to a young man the other day in Starbucks who told me that he was so encouraged when in his quiet time a feather fell from the ceiling and landed on the page. That sounds somewhat outlandish to us, but in the same way, how are we looking for something other than Christ when we sit down to read? Are we looking to be able to tell our care group, yeah, I read my Bible this week? Are we looking for just general principles for our, to make ourselves a little bit better person, to get through our day, have a little bit of extra, I don't know, emotional 
something else emotional in our tank. Our passage today calls us to be established in Christ alone, just as we've been taught in the gospel. So we're to be rooted, we're to be built up in him, established in the faith, just as we, we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As I meditated on this passage, I, I kept asking myself, Paul, what? I, I get that thanksgiving is important and all, but how does it fit here? Then it occurred to me that this superabounding, overflowing thanksgiving that Paul references here is the perfect antidote to the problem that he's addressing. You see, the problem wasn't that they were undermining everything about Jesus. They weren't attacking Jesus directly. They were simply saying, look, Jesus is good, but you need something else. We're ungrateful for what God gives us. We look for other things. This is our response to all that God has done. Paul shifts to the active mood here. This is no longer a passive. This is our response to hit God's initiative. To overflow in thanksgiving for the one and only Lord and Savior, to be thankful for him is to be kept from looking for another. Thanksgiving is the proper response to God's good and perfect gifts. We might say that the proper response to grace is gratitude. And there's no greater grace gift given to humanity than Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul told the Romans, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The proper response to grace is a deep gratitude, a deep thanksgiving, a superabounding thanksgiving to God. It's, it's expressed through faith. It's, it's expressed through trust and worship of God for his goodness. Believer, do you daily remind yourself of that? Are you abounding in thanksgiving for what God has given you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you overflowing in gratitude? If not, return to Christ. This is where your life is found. Worker, do you see yourself in the light of God's grace? Do you see yourself as a slave to Jesus Christ, that your rights have been stripped, and that you do your work as unto the Lord in a way that's fully pleasing to him? Mom, dad, do you daily refresh your appreciation for God's grace to you in Christ so that it overflows in your discipline your instruction, your interactions with your kids, when they refuse to sit in the pew that you chose for them? Are you overabounding in thanksgiving for God's grace, and does it shape that response to them? Children, do you see yourself 
in light of God's grace? Do you see the honor that you give your parents as an opportunity to honor God? Do you understand that if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly Father, and all your life is due Him? I've addressed these to believers, and that's what Paul does in this book. He's writing to a church. But I suppose a a prior question needs to be asked. Have you ever responded to the grace of God in Christ Jesus the Lord? Have you ever acknowledged his preeminence and his lordship over your life? Have you been rooted in Christ, as Paul says here? If not, the call to you is to respond and hear the Lord's word today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our God of grace, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. We ask, Lord Christ, that we may receive you as the preeminent Lord that you are. Help us not run beyond you. Help us not seek to add to you. Help us not seek fullness or maturity in anything else. Let there be no counterfeits or competitors to you in our heart. Help us to respond in abounding thanksgiving. Give us hearts that would respond to the words of eternal life that you have given us in your gospel. May your blessings be added to this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.